Okay, today on the show, we have Daniel Fagella. He is Head of Research and CEO of Emerge, Artificial Intelligence Research. Dan, thanks very much for being on the show. Lewis, I'm glad to be here with you. Dan, I think uh, the name gives it away, In Check with Fintech. We typically have uh, CEOs and other leaders from the fintech industry, but we were keen to get Emerge on because, as we were just saying before the show, your customer base, uh, the people using your research, are also in the world of, of payments and fintech and other parts of financial services. So I thought it would be very interesting for our audience to, to hear from you. Um, so why don't you kick us off, Daniel, by just introducing uh, the listeners to Emerge Artificial Intelligence. Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll give a quick backdrop. Probably the easiest way to think about us is like a very boutique forester or gardener. So forester or gardener provide market research insights and data, as well as some level of advisory. Um, and that's what we offer as well, except our focus is much more narrow. Our focus is exclusively on the ROI of artificial intelligence in financial services. So that's payments, that's credit cards, it's wealth management, banking. These are the spaces where the, the majority of our, our research hones in. So uh, we're normally brought in for one of three reasons. Number one, a company's working on an overall AI strategy that they want to develop something that's going to win in the market. Number two, uh, they're trying to pick a high ROI AI project, something that's actually going to deliver value uh, for their firm, or they're looking for the right vendor partner. And in either case, uh, we're going to be able to step in with research and advisory and help them make those decisions. So the, the ROI of, IA, of, of AI and finance, that's uh, the name of the game for us here. I love it. Just paint a picture for us. When might a prospective customer come to you. So they have a yeah, yeah. AI driven project that they're thinking of. Maybe they wish to change a banking service or uh, a customer or, or user experience service, uh, invest some AI into an infrastructure change. Where's the first touch point and, and what do you do early on when a potential customer comes knocking on the door? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you uh, I'll give you the ideal first touch point and then what often is the, uh, the first touch point. So the ideal first touch point is a company that is, is generally getting up to speed on what AI could do in terms of their, their own digital transformation, their future market advantage, you know, bigger picture, not just little plug and play stuff. Um, and at that point, they're, you know, beginning to make some, some hard decisions here about where are we going to apply this first? Or, you know, if we're looking at a, a retail bank, for example, are we going to do payments fraud? Are we going to work on compliance matters? Are we going to work on some kind of customer service application? And they're looking at a lot of press releases from their competitors but you know, they've got a sneaking suspicion that uh, they, they don't really know what's delivering return on investment and, and what might be the best first step for them. So they would bring us in to get an understanding of their lay of the land and also to get an understanding of what's actually delivering value for their competitors and other companies um, and help them pick that first project and make sure that it succeeds. So that would be the ideal. Now, what often happens, uh, Lewis, is companies will call on us after they do two or three little pilot projects that really were kind of done without any high-level picture of the strategic value of the application, any firm understanding of the kind of AI maturity we would need to have before we pick that kind of application, or any kind of realistic grounding of, is what this vendor promised actually realistic? So, you know, you waste a million and a half dollars, maybe two and a half million dollars, all of a sudden, you know, you kind of come to the conclusion that it might make sense to work with a research firm to, to sort of, you know, pick and choose here, something that's actually going to deliver value back, um, as opposed to have some sandbox projects that were far too expensive. So it's often the latter case when we get called, but I sure do love it when people are proactive and they, they call us mm. in the former. 
Would you say it's becoming more normal for companies to proactively call a boutique such as yours? So before they've, you know, for want of a better word, wasted a million dollars sandboxing some AI idea and working with perhaps the wrong partner to do so, reaching out to you before they do that, do that. are you getting a bigger funnel with these sorts of customers or is it typically companies that have already tried and failed? You know, it's, it's, it's probably the same mix that it was two years ago, to be honest. Um, what I will say, though, is that because our presence has grown, so we run a podcast called the AI and Business Podcast. We also have one. Co- so AI and Business is something like 80,000 listeners every month. It's been running for something like eight years now. Um, and the AI and Financial Services Podcast is another show of ours. So since that's grown, the email list has grown, um, more and more of the first touches that we have are people who are already pretty thoroughly educated on the use case landscape and on the conceptual grounding of AI ROI. We have a lot of frameworks, a lot of methodologies, um, a lot of kind of core tenets that we talk about in our content. And so we are getting people with a higher contextual grasp, which, which <laughs> makes conversations easier. But to be honest, it's probably the same mix of proactive folks and folks who know damn well that they just wasted a mill and a half and it's time to make smarter decisions. Yep, yep. in this COVID, landscape that, that we're currently in are you seeing use cases coming through the door relevant to it how are your how is your customer base trying to react to using your services to this this new reality that we're still adjusting to yeah well there's a lot of considerations here and, and we work with some vendor companies uh it's mostly big enterprises we, we kind of focus the business is built around the buyer but um, we do work on some of the vendors and so there's a lot of dynamics happening in AI and finance in terms of what people are using us for in terms of how vendors are responding and adjusting their products um, so there's pros and cons so what I'll what I'll do is I'll kind of tee up like why is COVID potentially facilitating um, uh, what what will hopefully be the right kind of AI adoption but also why is it holding us back from from deploying uh, AI at the speed we might like to. So the upside here is that a lot of firms are now forced to sort of uptick their digital transformation writ large. Um, a lot of firms are forced to think about efficiencies in a really big way. Uh, and a lot of firms are kind of overhauling processes with a tremendous amount of their workforce going remote. And this is pretty conducive to rethinking how we're doing things, potentially automating things, um, and, and integrating AI in some way, shape, or form. So um, of the interest that we have now, a lot of it is around driving efficiencies. Around, a lot of it is around process automation. Now, that's not the only place we should apply AI. There's risk reduction, there's driving revenue, there's customer experience improvement. There's a lot of other measurable outcomes, but primarily what we're seeing is a focus on efficiencies as companies are, you know, some of them are forced to think about layoffs, for example. Um, and, and how they can still keep their business up and running. So that's, that's an upside. One of the, the wrestling matches and the struggles here is that artificial intelligence does involve some R&D budget. It does involve some uncertainty and some iteration. It does involve some new skill sets and some hands-on work and, and new kinds of collaboration between teams and data scientists. And that, as it turns out, is a little bit tough to do when mm-hmm. we're struggling with finances and we're struggling with everybody being willy-nilly and remote around the world. So there's some good factors here, some, some rough factors here. Um, you know, things are certainly going to even out, but for the time being, a focus on efficiency and a focus on very pointed uh, individual workflow improvements, as opposed to like a big overhaul of a whole process. Oh, we're going to rethink how we interact with our customers for wealth management. Those kinds of AI applications are not as interesting right now as um, 
can we find our documents in one third of the time that it takes us to search mm -hmm. these silly mortgage documents in the current process so that we just don't need as many people on the phone or we don't have as many customers get angry. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more focused on, on pointed stuff. So we're seeing a bit of a, a bit of a tilt in that direction, at least at present. And I think that's probably going to be the case for the next year. Yep. yep. A good explanation and a good rationale for the way you're using your business to help us all cope with this unusual time we're going through, even if it's just um, helping companies work better remotely, it could be, like you said, just um, retrieving documents. If we're able to work uh, online remotely better, um, there's less reasons for companies to lay people off because we can be just as efficient yep. working from home. And that's, that's to the good. Help some of our more, uh, let's say people who are less versed in AI, let's take it, down uh, a gear, yeah. um, just help define for us, we're talking about AI and financial services, um, help the layman understand, what does it actually mean? What, do you, what is the bigger goal here? If you would, take for us a picture of where AI in financial services has been over the last three, four years, where it is now, where it's almost mainstream, almost expected for large companies to be making some sort of investment in this, and where it might be, in a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, we'll pull up to the high level. And, and just so you know, um, you know, for the sake of your audience here, most of the folks that we work with are, are not by any means AI experts and they don't need to be. Um, our, our work essentially is about translating. So taking the hard technical stuff, taking the market research trends, uh, the landscape of applications, what's working, what's not working, and essentially turning that into simple business people language, uh, bottom line, communicating about the bottom line, not communicating about lines of code. That's, that's sort of the, the way that we operate here. So I'm happy to give you kind of the debrief on, on the lay of the land across financial services widely. Yes. You know, this is drawing on information from wealth management, banking, credit cards, insurance. I mean, a lot of different quadrants of, of this space, but um, if we, if we really look kind of at where things are now, uh, there's a huge amount of focus uh, from the, the companies themselves to tell you, the, uh, the consumer or you, the investor, that um, their focus is on AI for some kind of customer experience improvement. So, hey, we, we've got this new chatbot. Hey, we've got this new thing that's going to help you, the, the customer, uh, on the front end in some way, shape, or form. Um, as it turns out, that's actually not where the money's going and where the progress is. So the bulk and the preponderance of the progress is in what we refer to as risk-related functions. So let me give you a couple of those. Um, fraud would be a big one. So payment fraud is massive. Anti-money laundering is massive. Uh, detecting potential compliance issues is massive. And cybersecurity is also very big. If we look at those three chunks, so uh, fraud, cybersec, um, and compliance, that's close to, from our current estimates the last time we've, we did our, our, this is AI and banking, so across commercial investment, and retail banking, close to 50% of all the money invested in AI and banks is just in those three chunks alone. Uh -huh. Now, you're not gonna hear about that from them, but the fact of the matter is most AI investments right now are focused on risk and efficiencies. Very interesting and yeah. very necessary. If you, if you think of that through, it, it may seem like the less sexy end of AI, but it's the most important. Um, we're talking about huge volumes of cash and other assets being transacted in one way or another. And the, um, the impetus is, of course, on whatever institution to make sure that is as secure as possible. A number of our customers are indeed these kind of anti-fraud 
um, AI-driven anti-fraud companies operating in e-commerce. Um, could be a small company, 50 to 100 people, yeah. offering AI-driven anti-fraud services to small to medium-sized e-commerce end customers. Um, are these sorts of companies relevant to Emerge? Yeah, you know, we do some work with vendor firms. So we do work on go-to-market strategy, for example. So we have the privilege of, you know, I'm regularly on the phone with people like, let's say, the head of AI at U.S. Bank or the former head of AI at HSBC or whatnot. We, we just happen to have connections that are quite strong. And so by leveraging primary research and primary research access, we're often able to, to sort of help with uh, product roadmap, kind of product delivery initiatives for, for vendor companies. Most of our work is with, is with buyers, but uh, vendors who've raised, let's say, more than 50 million um, are certainly potential customers uh, for, for Emerge. Um, there's a couple reasons I'd like to double down on. You know, you brought up an important point, and I really want to tell you kind of what the research has started to air out here. So mm -hmm. you brought up an important point that, hey, we're managing a lot of money. It's really, you know, it's, it's in our interest to make sure that that's, you know, safe and there's no fraudulent activity. Um, we've got a couple sort of big reasons why uh, fraud, among other um, risk-related functions, are, are really where the rubber is meeting the road in terms of things that are making their way into deployment. So here's a couple big reasons that I think will be important for your audience. Um, one of them is, now, e-commerce is a very different cultural milieu. But if we're just talking about banking and finance, just mm -hmm. rock steady banking and finance, we're not talking about e-commerce, um, the culture is already a, about risk. So the, the culture is about risk, especially after 2008, certainly here in the States, probably elsewise, um, you know, the, the additional regulatory hoopla, um, you know, the, the, the spook factor of sort of everything horrible that happened during that period, there, there's just a culture of risk. These are also like 200-year-old companies. So mm -hmm. the culture of risk is also just the fact that they're you know, stodgy. And, and that's not to insult the companies. We work with a tremendous, you know, number of, of banks that are, you know, older firms. They've got great folks there. But, but you know, culturally, that's just something that, that occurs. So for that reason, emphasis might be a little bit more on, on risk. Um, and there's all kinds of ways that vendors can appeal to that. And that's part of what we help them with. Um, the, the other factor here, uh, and there's two other factors, but another really important factor is that anomaly detection happens to be a very low-hanging fruit way to deliver value with artificial intelligence. So let me, let me be a little bit more clear here. I'm gonna give you two examples of an AI application. One of them is very, very difficult, and the other one is actually quite simple in terms of, of measuring and obtaining value from the application. So in one application, let's just pretend, and this is an example of an actual product, by the way. We analyze, just to give you an idea, in financial services alone, something to the, to the order of 400 plus companies um, uh, applying AI over the world in, in financial services broadly. So this is, this is a representative example. A wealth mm -hmm. management um, AI firm that uh, purports, so it purports that it's gonna take a look at the trading activities and holdings of your different customers. It's gonna take a look at the historical kind of timing when you've communicated with these wealth management customers. And it's gonna help you, the wealth manager, kind of account manager person, to, um, uh, to, to sort of update these customers with the right kind of content that maybe would be helpful oh, this guy's buying and selling a lot of Disney stock. Okay, maybe I'll send him this or what have you. And maybe mm -hmm. even also prompt these wealth management folks on when to make a phone call based on maybe when this person is most likely to pick up or something. And the idea here is that hopefully uh, we would be able to um, improve the customer lifetime value of this, of this customer. Now, there's a lot of challenges in what I just articulated to you. So one of them is that, and there's 
far too many challenges for me to even go into in this podcast. One of them is that the way we could actually know if we are quote unquote working here, if we're, we're quote unquote improving things here, would take a tremendous amount of time. Like the, the customer lifetime value of a wealth management customer, what is it, 20 years, 10 years? Mm -hmm. I mean, even if we did two years, even if we, we really dropped it through the floor, we just said two years. Even then, I mean, that's a very long cohort test to not even know if we're improving by an inch. Um, mm -hmm. th there's also a lot of technical issues with that kind of application. Very complicated. We're looking at a lot of different data sources. Um, the f I'm going to give you another example. I'm going to give you another example. This is detecting payment fraud. Okay, here we go. So we have payments come in. I see who made the payment, who collected the payment. I see what time it was. I see how much money it was. I say whose name it is. I see what the credit card number is, whatever the case may be. Um, and I want to know, is this fraud uh, or is it not fraud? Well, the fact of the matter is, if we have millions of historical records that are you know, of, of that kind of data, and we can train an algorithm on what the common patterns of fraud have been, and also we can figure out what the common patterns of not fraud have been. So we can detect two things. Number one, what looks like fraud? That's important, that's important to know. Another one, what does not look like a normal payment? It might not be fraud, but it doesn't look like a normal payment. And so by, by doing that, that's anomaly detection. Um, we're able to very, very quickly get a sense of, you know, in 45 days, are we detecting more fraud with this damn algorithm or not? Are we making or saving some money around here or not? And the fact of the matter is, um, CyberSec, it's very hard to quantify this, but in, in fraud and anti-money laundering um, and, and in certain compliance processes, it's very, very swift to determine, are we making better use of our human time and are we reducing our risk and reducing our costs? We can actually measure it. So for that reason, um, anomaly detection is, is often gonna be a commonality among the low hanging fruit early deployed applications within financial services firms. They have to learn this the hard way, um, and, and it's not always going to be our advice to every single financial services firm we work with, but that's another very important point. I want to see if you have any questions there because I realize <laughs> I, I just gave you a lot of all at once. <laughs> no, that was great. So anomaly detection is the low hanging fruit. That's the kind of, is, yes, it is, is often the low hanging fruit. Yes. It often, not, not for all firms, but for many. And that's yep. the place where you can immediately start adding values. You mentioned 45 days, a couple of months rather than two years. Um, to really see a difference in, in, in bottom line, are you saving customers from fraud or are you not? It's, it's quite quantifiable. Where does the AI part come in? I, I can understand yeah, yeah. Um, I can understand people committing fraud. There could be false positives. Maybe it's an unusual payment, but not fraud, etc. And you can re reduce all that over time, given enough data inputs. Um, how do you apply artificial intelligence to the decision management over all of that data? Yeah, when you say decision management, do you mean um, do we decide to call it fraud and not let it go through, or do we decide to let it go through? Is that the decision you're referring to? Yeah, you, you could imagine a really old-fashioned uh, you know, payment processing AML manager going through reams of data looking for anomalies, <laughs> you know, the old-fashioned human brain AI. Yeah. Where is the AI machine? Where is it? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yep. So where, where is it couched in the process? So this is actually something in, in our podcast, we try to over and over and over talk about the pre-AI process and the post-AI process to make it click for business people as to where the junctures are, where AI is actually layering value. Because AI is not changing everything. It's just helping at critical junctures where AI can actually do something. So with fraud, um, I'll give you a little bit of a gist at a very conceptual level as to how this would work. So if I am a, you know, I'm a credit card company, I'm American Express. 
Um, and we were actually interviewing a, a VP of AI at Amex, I think in, I think in August 19th or something. So he's going to be on the podcast not that long from now. Um, so uh, let's say I'm American Express. Um, I can look at uh, all, all of my, my reams of transactions. And probably for a company like Amex, we'd be looking at some kind of segment here. So we'd be looking at a geo segment, like let's say, you know, the Northeast of the United States, or we'd be looking at some kind of a, uh, a customer segment, like small business owners or something like that, whatever the case may be. Amex has way too many transactions to try to uh, turn this all into one giant cohort. So we, we look at a group and we would say for this group, um, what are all the transactions that have been labeled fraud or what is all the transactions have been able, not labeled fraud, let's say in the last four years, five years, whatever it is that we want to look at. And maybe we're looking at some kind of a, um, a representative sample of the last eight years, who knows, whatever we're looking at. It's, it's probably going to be much more heavily weighted towards uh, the near past rather than the far past. Regardless, mm -hmm. we'll look at everything that's been labeled as fraud, everything that hasn't been labeled as fraud, and we'll train an algorithm to figure out what are the common factors. So um, when the algorithm sees a new transaction, it's going to have a confidence gradient. And this confidence gradient might say, hey, I am, uh, you know, 97% sure this is fraud. Or it might say, I'm, uh, this, this only has a 3% chance of being fraud based on, you know, the, the, algor the algorithm's sort of connection to past fraudulent instances. And as this is happening, we're able to decide as a company, what do we want to do with that? We might decide that if it is under $200 and it's over a 95% chance of being fraud, um, or over, even over an 80% chance of being fraud, that, that we're just not going to let it go through. We're just not going to let it go through. That's it. We might decide that if it's $2,000 and it's over a 40% chance of being fraud, we're not only not going to let it go through, but we're going to kick out some kind of message to call that person right away because maybe with bigger monetary values, we're going to take different actions. So the algorithm is just going to give us a confidence gradient. It's our job as a company to say what confidence gradients do we feel confident with under what circumstances and then what actions do we want to take and then we're going to prompt humans for the most part to to take whatever those necessary next actions are so the algorithm might be able to help us say go ahead and bill it or go ahead and don't bill it um, but it, it's going to be the company that then decides um, what at what junctures and different kinds of outputs do we want to take different kinds of actions and the goal there would be a much more efficient use of essentially everybody on the fraud team um, and leveraging kind of investigative resources only when it's warranted and not when it's just repetitive, you know, like you said, looking over reams of data with the human brain for its own sake. Mm -hmm. well, just, uh, a confidence a gradient, the higher the sum of money, the less the risk appetite. And then learning from doing that thousands and thousands of times to continuously refine that, that decision-making process. Um, fascinating stuff. Yep. And I think we could all rest assured that that is actually going on. And when I received the odd phone call from my bank, because I've uh, used, uh, used the card incorrectly to, to, to book a flight, and I've only done that once a year, and I suddenly get a, a phone call. I should, of course, be, be, be grateful for it rather than uh, peeved off. But, um, okay, wonderful stuff. Well, yeah, the, the, goal, the goal over time is that you'll be peeved off less. So yeah. if, if the AI is trained well, then those odd instances that seem off will be detected as less likely to be fraud for you. So uh, should the technology develop better and better, you and I will be less annoyed with our banks. <laughs> um, tell us about the nuts and bolts at Emerge. Um, do you have intellectual property? Do you employ mostly technical or business people? What yeah. does your company look like internally? Sure, sure. I mean, the, the, the bulk of sort of work here 
is going to have to do with uh, market research. So kind of analysts, research fellows. We have some folks that are full-time with us. We have some folks that are kind of part-time and get pulled in for certain kinds of projects. So you could say kind of analyst is the default role. Of course, we'd still need to manage, you know, uh, putting out our podcasts and marketing activities and, and uh, handling, you know, fundamental customer service and office stuff. Uh, but, but primarily we're, we're, you know, we're, we're focused on crunching numbers, writing content, putting together projects for clients that we have to deliver on. Um, and for the most part, in-house, it's not technical folks. So we like people who have some understanding of business, potentially some background in a specific industry, but we have research advisors who kind of tackle the PhD level stuff. So my main uh, research advisor is, is the head of machine learning at a company called HubSpot, which is a, a unicorn company here in Boston. Mm. Very, very smart, postdoc, MIT, just one of these like melt your brain out of your ears kind of smart people. <laughs> um, and he's, uh, you know, he, we have, we've got, uh, we've got him. And then we've also got one more PhD uh, research advisor in Spain, who's a, a PhD in, in natural language processing, because a lot of our client work has to do with that. So when we're assessing vendors or we're building new research scoring criteria, or we are comparing vendor products at a nuanced and, and kind of very uh, detailed level, often it's going to be those advisors that'll help us with deeper scrutiny, help us with grilling and questioning uh, and coming up with the right questions to sort of poke out the technical details. But the finished product is always going to be for the C-suite, for a director, for a VP, not for somebody who wants to read linear algebra. So primarily we are not looking at uh, technical folks. In terms of IP, um, our AI opportunity landscape is the bulk of our IP. It's also the bulk of why people do business with us. So mm -hmm. emerj.com slash A-I-O-L. That stands for AI opportunity landscape, emerj.com slash A-I-O-L. There's kind of a two-minute video as to what our research process looks like, but this is where we leverage our proprietary scores for evidence of ROI, for ease of deployment, for a number of very important criteria across the entire landscape of vendor applications within an industry and across all the known deployments and investments within the global top 20 companies within that industry. So insurance, banking, credit cards, et cetera. Um, and, and that constantly updated pool of data is often gonna be the grounding base of any client project. And it's the IP that much of our business is built upon. Brilliant. Daniel, we need to get you in front of our own customer base and audience more. Can you just remind us of the name of your podcast? Probably a good place for people oh, yeah, to start sure, finding sure. out more. Yeah. It's just called the, the AI and Business Podcast. So pretty easy to find on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, anywhere you listen to podcasts, AI and Business. I think we, we, we just got to 100 reviews done on Apple not that long ago. So hopefully Thanks. folks interested in this stuff will enjoy tuning in there. Yep. I'm going to ask them to check out your company, check out your podcast. Let's please uh, get all the links over and make sure people can find you easily. Where, where's the easiest place to um, inquire after potential yeah, business services? Sure, yeah. Um, well, I would say two things. If, if folks are interested in what we do here at Emerge um, in terms of enterprise services, that emerj.com slash AIOL, that stands for AI Opportunity Landscape, that's probably the best place to drop an inquiry if you're curious about um, supporting a larger business decision. So if you're really interested in advisory about the return on investment of AI, that's a great place to start. Most of your audience, I would guess, is probably just interested in learning a little bit more, becoming more savvy. And we've actually got um, a, an executive cheat sheet called the, the AI and financial services executive cheat sheet, where we talk about fraud, we talk about a number of other um, key bits of terminology and key use cases to basically make you, you know, smarter than most people in the room in, in maybe six or eight pages. Um, and, and that, that 
is a is a PDF that's free. It's just emerj.com slash F-I-N, that's like finance, F-I-N, and then the number one. So emerj.com slash F-I-N one. So folks that just want to learn more, read more, be smarter than their peers, you can check that site out. If you want to actually do some business with us, emerge.com slash A-I-O-L is, is the best place to drop an inquiry. Or feel free to hit me on Twitter and let me know you heard me on Lewis's show and I'll be happy to <laughs> you know, message, message you on back there. Brilliant. Daniel Fagella, Head of Research, CEO of Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure, a real whirlwind of, of new information about the world of AI. So thank you for your time. Let's absolutely stay in touch. Let's see if we can get you back on the show in maybe three to six months or so and, and see how your company's growing. You bet, brother. You bet. I look forward to it, Lewis. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much, Daniel. Bye for now. Bye.